0: Hello and welcome to Tea room Talks, the podcast breaking the stigma. I hope you're okay and well this week and thank you for joining me once again. So this week I am joined with Ken Banks and we discuss finding your place in the world, a look at pressures that we can sometimes come under when we are seeking a successful career, how it can feel when your career finally gets you where you want to be, dealing with depression and managing your workload, imposter syndrome and the nagging feeling of wanting to achieve more. We discuss Ken's past experiences of working towards projects that benefited so many, how he dealt with timescales, the pressures and the times that he was also onto a new challenge and also had too much spare time and unknowing what to do with it. As you know, with mental health, having too much spare time isn't always a good thing. We also catch up and chat about his new book that he has published. It's an effort to help those in need to fulfil themselves, both in a professional and personal sense. Let's take a listen to the chat that I had with him. So I'm here with Ken Banks, author of The Pursuit of Purpose. Ken, thank you very much for being here. No, no, you're welcome. It's great to great to see you again. In regards to mental health, have you personally ever had any problems, had any struggles that you wish to share with us? Um, absolutely. I
1: think very few people, if they're honest, would be able to say they've gone through life and never had any doubts or concerns or worries or felt vulnerable or confused or desperate in some way. Um, one of the reasons for writing this book really was to try to come to terms with my own story and so I've been very very honest in how I've written written that book and how I struggled to find some purpose and meaning in my life and what it meant to me when I when I found it um, So I think absolutely and I, I still do I mean there's a there's a whole bunch of things always going on in people's lives and you don't always get to see them. I think you see the veneer, you see the surface, you see the the happy successful person that some people would see see that I am. But underneath, there's always always something going on, and I don't think I will ever be a hundred percent mentally
0: stable. I don't think many people are. No, I think you've you've talked about a good point there because I've often thought that once my mind realised how to attack myself, I've often thought that that feeling will never disappear. But in a strange way, I don't think I want it to because it helps monitor how I feel and almost my my levels of happiness and perhaps where I am um in regards to work in regards to personal life that these various feelings or triggers I I can I can keep an eye on it I I don't know if that's sort of similar to yourself
1: yeah I mean I think you you it's hard to know when you're happy if you don't know what it's like to be sad right because if you're not like a a red setter that has this sort of you know this in the cartoon (laughs) and you like the same facial expression for everything I think for me I I as I've got older, I've become more aware of my mood. I think when I was younger, I don't really remember being that conscious of being down. I was driven and I was frustrated, but I think as I've got older, I'm more aware and conscious of of days when I'm, I wouldn't say depressed because that's maybe the wrong word, but days when I'm down or feeling pessimistic or not feeling as optimistic about things as I should. But then I know the next day I'll probably be okay. You know, it's never does it never really lasts a very long time, and I often feel I'll go to bed, I'll sleep on it. Tomorrow's another day,
0: and often I'll I'll feel better the next day. That's right, and I think for what you've just described, a lot of people would say the feeling of mental health and the, you know the struggling phase. It it comes in waves, and and sometimes it's if you was to look at it over the course of a year or a week, where you would have your chart where it would sort of be dipping upwards where you feel quite happy, then a day where it's down and a day where it's up and you'd almost look over the year and think, Okay, well I can see a gradual chart that actually my mental health has declined or it's obviously been up. I don't think it's ever as simple as today I feel happy and I'm gonna feel happy for six months. Mm. It's I feel absolutely brilliant. Today I've had a really good day and the next day you could wake up and feel a bit empty and a bit lost so how you feel
1: absolutely and I don't know what drives that in, in me I mean I know a few years ago you know we had twins nine years ago uh, and we have a, another son who's 11 and it was you know we had a very tough time as a family because me and my wife were just trying to make everything work and I did reach out actually for mental health support and what I found amusing in a twisted sort of way is when I was talking about how how I was struggling with things the person on the other end of the line with this health program they said um have you ever felt this way before um, because they didn't treat new conditions, right? Or they didn't treat, sorry, they didn't treat conditions that had been previously, yep. been previously had. Got be so nice. I said, So what? So what you're telling me is because I felt sad and depressed before, and it's a, it's a pre existing condition, you're not going to be able to help me. And I actually got no help because I admitted, I don't think anyone could go on a call with anyone and say, I've no, no, I've never felt depressed in my entire life. I've always been amazingly optimistic. That was really enlightening. And as long as I wasn't thinking of topping myself, They weren't interested really in helping. And I found that incredible because I knew I could probably pull myself out of
0: this, but I knew a lot of people probably couldn't. Yeah, I think that's right because you you don't just all of a sudden go to a a professional and say, yeah, today I feel like killing myself and um, it's only started today. A lot of the time when people seek help, it's been happening for a very long Mm. time and your mental decline is so severe that... you realise that there is nothing else to do apart from get help. You you know, I I found myself, when I was really struggling, I almost came to a crossroads where, in simple terms, it was, well, Toby, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill yourself? Or are you going to get help? Which one is it? And because my mind was so panicked, obviously my impulse kicks in, I, I want to get help, I want to live. But like you say, it's not as simple when you go to a professional and say these items are affecting me or just general mood obviously sometimes there's no subject but to then not get the help where like you say it's I wouldn't say an existing condition but yeah obviously quite clearly whether it's undiagnosed um to end up with no help obviously is is incredible that that's what it led for you
1: yeah and on the surface you know I was still relatively at the peak of my work which is you know again mentioned in the book and to most people I was um a very successful, high-achieving individual who was doing incredible things. And, you know, I was almost sort of an untouchable sort of hero to some people. And as you say, I think sometimes when people ask how you are or they ask you how your day is or they just ask you more generally, you know, how things are in your life, I don't think they always ask the question in the right sort of way, right? Because no. everyone always says, you know, you say, how are you? I'm fine, you know. I think an arm around the shoulder and for someone just to maybe slightly more instinctively ask some, you know, some people may have picked up that I was struggling at that time. But you know what? I, I, my mum, my dad died when I was very young. My mum brought us all up. She had a very tough time. She was the kind of the the sort of war mentality that you just get on with it. Right. Um, And I think she probably had lots of times when she was severely struggling, but she pulled up the bootstraps and, and got on with it. And I think I've inherited that. So a lot of the time I just thought, you know what? pull yourself together, man. You know, like, just get on with it. My mum suffered a lot worse than this.
0: As you've mentioned there about yourself and your background and the work that you've done in regards to finding your place in the world, as someone who's worked on projects around the world and you're often swamped with work or in between projects, you know, sometimes you are in in between the the, the large tasks so you have a lot of time on your hands. You know, how would you say that your, your mental health has been monitored for yourself during those times did you find that when you were swamped with work it was easier to keep it at bay did you find it was actually more prominent or in the vice versa when you had more time on your hands you think that you had more time to react or because you had a lot of time to think it was worse for you what would you say about that
1: Mm, I mean I think I've I've always had a really unhealthy obsession with being busy and I actually still probably do so I'm really bad at just sitting down and just doing nothing or reading a book I just I just cannot do it. I feel that every minute of every day that you need to be achieving or doing something. So I was just obsessed with having side projects. If I had time on my hands, I would either come up with an idea for a project, I would do writing, I would have to find something. And so now I just try to force myself just to sit down with a book just for an hour because I, I, I still feel that life is precious, life is short, I, not doing anything is unproductive, not doing anything is bad for me. And I think that's probably because for a large part of my working life, the bit that I was most successful, it was crazy. I mean, I was flying everywhere. I was talking. I was writing. I was winning awards. I was raising money. We had projects in 190 countries. I mean, it was it was a complete and absolute dream. So you all, that almost becomes the norm. And when that becomes the norm and then it stops, there's a brilliant book that's come out in the last year by a guy called Arthur Brooks. It's called From Strength to Strength. and It's about professional peaks. And I haven't read it yet, but I know Arthur. And it's about people who've had these pop stars, perhaps, or actors who fall off the pedestal, they become normal people. So there's Terence Trent Darby, who had hits in the 80s, who's now a farmer in France. You know, people who had this amazing professional peak, but then lost it. And I feel that's exactly what's happened to me. I I now struggle to think that I had all that and now I don't have that. And (laughs) do I miss it or do I want it back? Um, It was difficult, but... So that's that's
0: how I feel about I just need to keep busy because it feels like a natural state to be busy. It's quite interesting to say when people were at quite a high in their life to going back to ordinary life sometimes as well some people can feel that when they are at a high in their life that they want to be an ordinary person and I think certainly in your book um, as I've read and I've dealt with the subject myself, the phrase imposter syndrome is is mentioned so of course with it being in your book you can relate to it but if you would care to expand onto what that means obviously to the listener what imposter syndrome is and, and how it affected you and, and what it meant for you. So
1: um, I mean imposter syndrome in a, in a general sense is feeling you don't really deserve any of the successes or achievements that you end up um, making in your life so you didn't deserve it for some reason or somebody else must have been more deserving or you were lucky or you've winged it in some kind of way. And so imposter syndrome is basically that. So when I look back to my early childhood and and the struggles that we had as a family and the struggles that I had in, in trying to find something meaningful to do with my life and then to through a freak accident in Nigeria and all sorts of other things to find it, but not only find it, but to pursue it with an incredible amount of energy and to succeed way, way over above anything that was ever expected. I always felt like a fraud. I thought, I I really don't deserve this. I'm no different than the next person. Why is it me that's achieved this and, and they didn't? Or they maybe are smarter than me or they have more money than me, or they have more resources than me. So I, I, I think at Stanford this came out probably the most that when I ended up at Stanford University. So I got two O-levels at school. I failed nearly all my exams. It was because it was, it was Spain 82. It was the World Cup. Wow. I watched all the football. I didn't do any revision. I, I was a complete failure at school. But I ended up at Stanford University on a fellowship. You know, Stanford is the sec- first or second top university in America. And so that's a great place to have imposter syndrome. When you're this kid from a housing estate in Jersey with one parent family who's had a pretty shitty time of it. To find yourself there where these kids' parents are paying 50, 60 grand a year to have them in that that university. And so you're like, I do not deserve to be here. But I love being kind of invisible around that as well. That I was this guy who was walking around with the headphones on, going to the coffee place. And I had this secret. And my secret was I had this project that was doing all this amazing good. But I look like an ordinary, your ordinary Joe kind of thing. And I quite like that. But I think the feeling of being an imposter still, it still feels like I was an imposter. I still don't feel like I deserved anything that happened to me. And it was, you know, luck that I ended up doing any of the work, you know, a broken leg in Nigeria, a random phone call from somebody who used to work at Jersey Zoo. Everything I tried to do in my life to be proactive, to make my life as, as good as possible, failed. And it was the twists of luck and bad luck that actually put me in a direction where I succeeded. So I never felt in control of my life. It wasn't anything I actually had control over. So that's also, I think, feeds into this kind of imposter syndrome. And it is a very common feeling. You know, David Bowie had it. um, Robbie Williams quite famously discussed it recently on TV with Dermot O'Leary. I think many people probably don't admit it. I mean, I've written a 25-page chapter in my book about imposter syndrome. (laughs) So I was very upfront about it. And it's very early in the book. But I think a lot of
0: people, they're afraid to admit that they feel that. Personally, I can really relate to it. From winning my award um, for Top Tradesperson through Screwfix. That was I, great, I, by I, the I, way. I was so, <laughs> so pleased for you. <laughs> Seriously, you know, knowing yeah. you for so long. It was so strange because I met so many fantastic people that were so deserving of the award in my eyes. And for me, being the youngest that's ever won it, I, I really came away... And once the elation and the excitement faded away, I really thought, what have I actually done to deserve this? And and almost felt like people were going to come knocking on my door and sort of be like, right, come on then, what's so good about you? And um, I can honestly relate to that because I, I, I wrote a, a note in my phone, maybe a couple of weeks after winning Screwfix when I was having a particularly bad mental health day and wrote that I completed my electrical apprenticeship, obviously very happy with that, served four years. Joined another company, you know, stuck with it. Had the, the strength to do that after leaving that apprenticeship and firm through verbal bullying and, and really not being happy where my career was going. I stuck with that career to then train up in the domestic sector. I opened my own company. I managed to survive coronavirus and find strength within that to make a name for myself and done it off my own back. Really proud of that. And here I am, three years after running the, the business and coming away with this. Amazing nationwide award. But I wrote that despite all of this, I can wake up some days and feel like a real piece of shit who didn't deserve any of it. Because, not because I'm a bad person, but just the way that my mind was feeling that I'm really not that special. And I think there's certainly a lot of people that will relate to that and feel that their careers or ideas or dreams they might have are so insignificant that they would often be, you know, cast aside. Certainly for yourself with dealing with that, what would you say and, and what advice would you we give someone who's quite doubtful of their own skills or feels inadequate, you know, what would you say in a personal note in, in their daily life, maybe their relationship, they don't feel like a good father, they don't feel like a good mother, a husband, a wife, a girlfriend, or what would you say in the professional field as well, you know, someone who doesn't feel like they are contributing enough or maybe mm. they aren't, Uh, respected enough what what would you say on those topics? So I I would treat
1: it the same I think regardless of the scenario because I think the feeling is very similar even though the scenario might be different the thing that I uh, again I say this at the start of the book writing down how I had felt and how I what I felt had made me feel that way allowed me to draw a line under it to to a certain extent and to come to terms with it all and I think writing it down has made me feel so much better about it and, uh, and has almost forced me to tackle it, f- you know, full on in a way that I never expected. Because I never, you know, for somebody who had imposter syndrome who didn't feel they deserved anything, really, to write a book about themselves is it's a contradiction, right? Like, why would I write a book that no one's going to give a damn about, right? <laughs> because who the hell you. am I, right? Yeah, definitely. Why would I do that? But it, it was almost done as a, as a mental health exercise, that book. It was I need to write down all the times that I felt really bad and write down what happened because it's the only way I'm going to come to terms with it. So my advice and my response to your question would be to write it down, because I think once you've written it down, you kind of captured it and you can almost close the book then. And I felt I could draw a line under a lot of things once i would finished that book. And obviously not everyone's going to write a book, so it could be a diary or a journal. But I think writing it down is so incredibly powerful. Because you're almost then, in a sense, transferring a lot of that anguish onto paper. You can then burn the journal or throw it away or shred it. You don't have to keep it. But if you do ever feel in a position where you want to look back and say, yeah, did I really feel that way? Or how did I come to terms with this particular feeling? Then you've, 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 caught, you've caught that and you've captured it. So I would say writing it or even recording it. You know, Get a, get a microphone or get your phone out and actually mm. record it and do a yeah. sort of audio journal. Um, because I, I was amazed how that worked for me. I never expected that. That's one of the big surprises with the book is how it's helped me come to terms with so many things. In it, even if nobody had read it, if I'd written it and it just ended up in the
0: discount sections of bookshops, I would have still been happy. Yeah, and, and first off, definitely someone's read it because I've got the book in front okay, of me. Okay, you're the one reader. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers but, for that sale. <laughs> so, well, I, I and again, I totally relate from creating this podcast Um, my initial thought was if one person listens to this podcast it's really served its purpose to help someone and it doesn't matter who that person is it doesn't matter if it was um, my best friend or if it's someone I've never met in my life in America or Africa who has just randomly subscribed to that if it helps them in their life then it's done its job and I feel that we can relate to that certainly with with, where your book comes up from that. And going back to your book where I've I've made some notes about topics that are mentioned within that, I actually mentioned this on a previous podcast um, about myself and you mentioned how you disguise sadness. And I often thought of the phrase that I became a very good actor to be able to mask my true person. And do you feel like that relates to you and and possibly other people?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, Again, it's probably part of the coping mechanism that you never really quite understand. But, and you hear this a lot. I mean, a lot of comedians are, are, you know, get very depressed and they yeah. have severe depression, right? Yes. They go up on a stage and you're like, whoa, that person's so funny. They've got it all sorted. They've got lovely family. They're on TV, blah, blah, blah. Um, if, if a comedian can stand up and go through that, uh, then um, for ordinary people to be able to do it, it's relatively easy, right? So for me just to be that fun, certainly on Five Oaks Estate when I was growing up, um, you know, when my father had died when I was five and we were having a tough time of it and I hated school and I you know, was very, very much kind of lost in the world. And from an early age, I think I, I realized that there was something I needed to be doing, but I just had no idea what that was. So to be able to go up with my friends and just be a laugh and be fun and just do everything that they did. And for there to be no inkling at all that any of this was going on in the background, that was a victory. In a, in a twisted sense, it was a victory to trick people. Yeah. because I would go out and I would, it, you'd have a great night out with your friends and you'd go home and then you'd go back to that bedroom, right? And then it, it's all gone and you're back to where you were. And that was a victory to be able to do that. And that's actually looking back it was very unhealthy and a very twisted kind of victory.
0: Again, going back to monitoring your own mental health, I think there are times in my life where I maybe would say that thoughts would creep in. And a bit like yourself, I would congratulate myself for not thinking about said thoughts for an hour, for five yeah. minutes, for you know, 10 seconds, whatever it might be. But I would go out, have a really good day, get back, it's almost open the door, bang, the thoughts are there waiting for you, as if they are people in there, mm. and uh, they're straight back in your head. But then I almost take the victory and I thought, well, I haven't thought about it for 12 hours, so there we are, I can, I can put it up and, and sort of slowly realise that, yes, they can improve and they do disappear. Yeah. However, your mind always knows those thoughts, so it can come flooding back. But also, like you say, it's a bit of a negative way because it wasn't It's was almost like burying springs around the house. You know, well, as you're soon never as, tackling it, are you? Exactly. You continually... are hiding it. You are hiding your own problems yeah. in your own head, mm. much like you are hiding them from your friends and your family, yeah. which I think is so interesting and, and so common mm. among people. It, it's so interesting to think that... I've known yourself for a number of years and certainly you've known me since I was extremely small. (laughs) And we have, no matter what we've done in in our lives, I'm construction background, you're technology, a creator, now an author, Mm. and yet we have this common ground of struggles with this. And and I think obviously we would have other things in common, but it's a real binding topic because you don't realise that away from that, something like mental health can dominate your life so when someone else is struggling with you yeah it makes you feel like that and I, I don't know if you know you've had experience with people you've met and I, I know the fantastic people you've met from obviously reading your book and seeing your your pages that you you might have met these experts and felt wow that person who is so established and well to do in their life they they struggle just like I do you mm. know?
1: I think as well you know looking back no one used to talk about it really I mean I don't know when it started to become a, become okay particularly for men I suppose because it's for, for a bloke right you're always supposed to be the this tough you know yep. sorted thing yep and so I I couldn't put my finger on when it started to become okay to say I'm not okay but for me growing up you on the estate I grew up on you did not say you were not okay right yeah. I mean so you 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 hide it and you play tricks on people and you disguise your sadness because that's a survival mechanism, really, because the minute you're seen as weak, then you end up, you know, you can get in all sorts of a mess. Yeah, and you're vulnerable, <laughs> aren't you? You're, you're oh, yeah.
0: vulnerable to be attacked and your emotions mm. to be played with. And I think yeah. that is, again, something that I can certainly say within construction and my upbringing that as soon as you revealed yourself to be weak in yeah. in that phrase, obviously not being weak, but in their eyes weak, you open yourself up to more abuse. You open yeah. yourself up to more jokes and, and more ridicule. And I think that is something that I would hope changes. And I think it is changing out there. And and like you say, yourself um, don't know when it sort of happened, but it is a theme now that is so common. There's more um, job roles and more um, schemes within companies to monitor mental health and obviously more job roles like mental health first aiders that are coming up. And as i've mentioned before you were at work or you 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 know slipped over at home and you'd broken both your legs and you can't come into work or you can come into work but you've got to do minor duties you know you're you're treated as you've had an injury you've had physical trauma that needs to heal and yeah. you need to monitor your you know your, your your process of getting better whereas if it was mental trauma so some people might expect that yes oh, okay. oh you've had a panic attack okay can you still work this afternoon yes and no (laughs) yeah Yeah. i can but my mind really won't be there and obviously that can lead to dangerous things certainly with myself being an electrician i really would not trust myself not being in the right frame of mind because i like to be sort of tip-top condition Mm -hmm. um but but like you say it's that way of realizing that because it's a mental illness you can't see it the road to recovery and sort of rehab for mending how you feel to be in a, a state to work is obviously quite important and, and, and yourself obviously working on such large projects and being swamped with work I think that's quite important I'd like to, to bridge across to something that you mentioned within your book which is um, seasonal affective disorder or SAD for mm. some people again a really common disorder amongst people some people might not even realise they have it so it might be quite interesting for you to explain what the disorder is and when you first noticed its effects and what the effects are for you.
1: Yeah you know I found it really hard in the book even to sort of describing how this had impacted me because I maybe I've always had it but it didn't really come to the fore until a particular um, period in my life but Seasonal affective disorder is basically, you know, mood swings, I suppose, might be the best way of describing it, yep. although they can vary as the seasons change. So you go from winter to summer or summer to autumn and so yeah, on. Yeah,
0: it's actually on the NHS website, it's referred to as winter <coughs> depression, okay. which obviously shows you the the change of the seasons, how it affects the moods.
1: Yeah. So I, um, when I went to university in 96, I sold, I sold everything. So I've been working in the finance industry for, must have been about 12 years at that point, maybe 13 years. I had a nice house. No, I didn't own it, but I rented a nice house. I had a good life. Um, I sold everything and moved to England with two suitcases and went to university. And I went to university in September or at the end, you know, end of September, because the term started in October. I had such a traumatic time that, that sort of winter fall or winter autumn period that ever since then, it's the first time I noticed it was in 1996, the exact year because of when it happened. But I noticed that because of the trauma I put myself through, the mental trauma of selling everything, moving to a place, starting again, and then doubting I was doing the right thing and doubting I even had the ability to do what I'd set out to do, gave me such bad feelings about myself that when I see the leaves falling off the trees now, and when I can feel that sort of slightly warm but cold air and when I go out on the lights a certain way, the way it would have been in the autumn of 1996, I go right back to the autumn of 1996 and how terrible I felt about what I was doing and how, I, how badly I felt about myself. And I get that also now in, in, in the onset of summer. So I get that now as we kind of go into spring and summer, I get the same kind of feelings. I, I found it hard to describe in the book how it made me feel, but I could pick up that the season was changing, just like a bird would. It, it's almost like some kind of strange
0: prime instinct within <laughs> It you. is,
1: yeah. Which I, I was, and if I had it before, I never noticed I had it. Or the trauma of what I was going through at that time, it just brought that sort of sense up to the surface. But I still have it. I still feel really horrible at you know September, October time. Come the spring, when the seasons change. I can smell, I can taste, I can feel all of that anguish, just like it was yesterday. Just like a pop song can take you back to a moment in your life mm-hmm. where suddenly all the feelings you had come back. And it's not a feeling you want to come back. This isn't like a happy song at your wedding. This is a feeling of trauma, of of not knowing what you're doing, feeling bad about yourself, feeling like an imposter. And I I don't really know what to do about that I just kind of tackle it when it comes but I know it's coming but there's nothing I can really do about it that I know
0: of apart from maybe fill my house with lights or something <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that's a really good point you know and it's it's amazing to think that all the way back in 96 is, is when it first sort of happened and it mm-hmm. still affects you um you know as a side note that was when I was born so who knows well, it could be that me coming into the world <laughs> the trauma of you being born there we go <laughs> <laughs> but um with the seasons changing, I've had a, a friend of mine who went to university in, in Finland and they often talk about the lack of sunlight mm. within Finland and it's, I believe, one of the, the highest rates of suicide in Finland um, because of that lack of natural sunlight and the lack of a season because there is that bit, like we said about that prime instinct, there is no sunlight mm. to feel like a normal, everyday, as we've evolved, nor a human being seeing the sunrise, the sunset, mm. I'm feeling productive, a lot of people can feel cagey. I mean, a lot of contractors will often say at this time of the year, oh, it's awful, isn't it? You go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark. Mm. And a lot of people feel the same, and they mm. don't realise how much it really does affect your mood. Yeah. And it isn't just because it's dark. It It's, like you say, it's the, the environment that actually shapes how you feel and how you might perceive certain situations. I'd very much be interested if you was to ask various questions on mental well-being to someone on a hot summer's day with glorious sunshine and if you was to ask them on a rainy winter's day what their actual you know the same question i'd be very interested to see how it affects you you mm. know and i think that's so interesting that you bring that up and you share that in your book that you suffer with it because i, I do genuinely think it's such an interesting look into the psyche of human nature
1: well, I mean, in a sense, your mental health underpins everything you do in your life, right? So, if it's if you have a, if you have a, a positive relationship with your mental health and you, you you don't struggle as much as some people, then that can kind of underpin the, the decisions you make and the directions that you go. And if you're if you have you know a challenging time with mental health, then that can also maybe you don't take opportunities that you could have taken because you don't feel you deserve them or that you would succeed at them. So, I think you know the reason SAD is mentioned because it it was a time in my life when I felt really bad about myself. And I wanted the book, to be honest, right? You don't write a memoir twice. No. You know, you have... When I see some authors, they've got like three autobiographies. You're like, why, why have you got three autobiographies? What didn't you say in the first two that you said in the third? <laughs> and so I thought, I'm going to write one book. And this is for my kids just as much as it is for me, yeah. right? Because when I'm gone, they can read this and it will make, they can figure out where they came from. And there is obviously bits about family history and how I come to terms with how I ended up maybe doing what I was doing. But I think the SAD and I think the the, just the the imposter syndrome and the general sense of the struggles I went through from the very beginning up until today. It's a constant theme are represented in the book because I don't want to pretend that it didn't happen because without that in the book, I look like some superhero. Right. It looks like the most incredible person has done the most incredible stuff. And actually it was done very, very with huge amounts of vulnerability. And I think that needs to be approachable. I think people need to see that and they need to say, you know what, if that person can do that, despite all those things, then that gives me hope that I could do it.
0: I 100% agree. And relating that to myself in regards to my recent award with Screwfix, that was really what stood out for them is the humility of, I want to show people that if they want to run a business, I mean, yes, okay, I'm an electrician, but it doesn't mean that a hairdresser, a painter... um, cafe owner you know doesn't mean that they can't start their own business if they have mental health problems yes okay the stress will get bad but so you know if you're employed it will it really doesn't change that fact you know and, and like you say it's with the book it's got to be laid bare isn't it you've got to be honest with yourself because if you aren't there's no point right in writing the book if if, if you're not going to be honest and lay yourself bare for everyone to see mm-hmm. and the book will be you know, for the reader, it helps a lot of people identify where they might not be sure where they're going in life, certainly, because I think um, certainly I've dealt with the feeling that I'm not really sure where I should go in life. Am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? And I think certainly reading your book made me feel reassured that all your achievements weren't planned, if that makes sense. It, Mm -hmm. It was a gradual path that you found. And you were questioning yourself along the way. And I think that's what's fantastic because you know, speaking to yourself, it isn't something like you you knew I was going to do this from day dot. It was project to project. What next? What's next? Oh, is there going to be a next? Yeah. And it just grew. And I think it was genuinely really reassuring for me to, to feel I don't have to rush myself into worrying about what the future brings for me. Yeah. You know, and I'd certainly say for yourself who has lived the life of exciting traveling and you know, project but you must look back and think yeah you didn't know what you was going to do year to year you know and and, and it was exciting in that in that way and have you had any feedback from readers who feel that they agreed with that topic that they felt reassured in regards to you know their place in in life
1: you know the books had um it's self-published so first of all that you're already open up opening yourself up to a huge struggle getting it out there anyway because self-publishing is it's easy but then you've got to promote it yourself. So it was, it was a self published book. So getting it out into the hands of people that I felt it could help was a challenge. But the response that I've had back so far from it has been incredible. Um, it's been very humbling that if I look at the Amazon reviews, you know, 50 on amazon.co.uk and 47 on.com and there's a bunch of other, other sites and people that just comment on LinkedIn and on social, social media, a lot of people have got a lot from the book and, As I mentioned in the book, and as I think I felt throughout the whole of my life, for me, it's always about giving back, right? So if you do get lucky and if you do succeed in something and you do find yourself in a place you never expected, think about those who are coming up behind you and how a small act of some kind can help lift them. So in the book, Mr. Cooper, who gave me my first chance to learn to code computers when I was at club, um, I would love to go out with a coffee with him. Now he died 10 or so years ago, but I'd love to take him out and just for him just to see everything that he enabled to happen because of the faith he gave me. My friends at Jersey Zoo who gave me the chance with the mobile work in Africa. Um, So the book in a way is me trying to give back. It's me writing down everything that happened, coming to terms for purely selfish reasons, right? This is my story. These are my insecurities. This is how crap everything was. But this is how it turned out. And it wasn't too bad in the end, you know, although it's an ongoing struggle. And also, here's some advice for you. If you want or you feel any anything like this, here in the book, the third part of the book is all about analysing purpose and meaning and direction in life. Because again, I felt the book needed to have some kind of advice in it. There's no point in just, oh, I've read about this guy, Ken Banks. What a lovely story. Thanks very much. I wanted it to be able to help direct people. So the whole third part of the book is about helping direct people. And the feedback I've had from people that have either read that or read the earlier parts of the book or who in some way have empathised with the story. It's been brilliant because if you don't connect with people what is there? Yeah. Right that's all that really matters.
0: I would definitely advise people listening to this that it is a very useful book and and certainly like I say our differences in way of career are extremely vast in in what we do. Yes I know that (laughs) you know programming softwares and um having that background where you, you worked in data technologies and, and things like that. Yes, okay, I, I know some electricians will do programming and, and obviously data mm-hmm. communications, but our differences are quite vast and it's a book that I found very relevant to my feelings and not just what you were doing as a career, it was just as a person. Yeah. So I, I yeah advise anyone listening who who might feel they, they would benefit reading from someone who's experienced certainly in, in life but um, I never talk you know. as
1: a geek. I think that's one thing I've always been so proud no, of. No, right? certainly. I, I have never, ever gone to any event or sat down with people and tried to sound clever. <laughs> because you know what? If you if you spend time with people and you just sound clever, either you walk away having achieved nothing or they walk away thinking, what a prick. Yeah. Right? Death So um, And you think, if I can just plant a seed or if I can relate to them in some way or help them in some way. So I I never talk technical. I wrote software for my mum, you know, to record the plants she saw and the birds she saw. And she'd never used a computer before. I wrote it in a way that she could understand it. And I always helped her over the phone and did tech support. I think a real skill in life is making something that may be complicated, really, really simple and approachable. And so when I speak to people about, you know, Frontline SMS, which is my big, big SMS platform I wrote, I remember having an interview with a Nokia engineer during the height of the success, and Nokia were huge back in those days. And he asked me what design principles I'd applied to developing the software and how I'd gone about making it so successful. And I said, "I've never even heard of these design principles. What? What are they? I just wrote something and made it really easy. Yeah, you know." And they were, he was disappointed that there wasn't something really smart and clever about what I had done. And I think the beauty, if I look back on what I've achieved, is that I've 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 done something which turned out to be quite brilliant, but done it in a way which is so approachable and so understandable and so simple that it does mean that anyone can do it, right? It's not like building a nuclear bomb or doing something no. really smart. I mean, some of the stuff you do, right, when, you know, fixing fuse boards and doing all that. I think that's amazing, yeah. right? Because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. And I'm sure there's an you easy know way. <laughs> there we go. You know, that, that, yeah. that, that, that fits there. I'll stick that in that hole. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that the real skill is, which is where David Attenborough is so great, right? And people like that and Brian yeah. Cox and so on, is that they can take things that are complex and are maybe difficult for most people to understand and to turn them into things that are understandable and are actionable. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely key
0: going to your projects that you've worked on over the past Uh, frontline sms certainly the largest for our listeners who might not be familiar with yourself would you mind expanding as to what that was and and how it helps people
1: yeah so i I always had this beef with the international development community that they were only only ever chasing the money and trying to do big projects that help big organizations and when i was traveling around africa in the kind of early 90s mid 90s I would meet so many people who are probably like the listeners to the podcast, right? Ordinary people with an ordinary life who want to make a difference. And they, ha- they have some passion or some drive. And what they need is a little bit of help. And so at the time, mobile phones were appearing in many kind of African countries, networks were appearing. And so people were starting to think about how could I use text messaging to say text health information to people or maybe the prices of the goods they're selling at the market so they can get the best price or that people could text in when they see some illegal logging or some poaching or whatever. And nobody was building systems that worked for ordinary people. They're building systems that work for the World Bank, the United Nations, big charities, but not people like me, not ordinary people. So I wrote a system. It's a bit like kind of Gmail for SMS in a way. It allows you to create groups and to then blast text messages to large numbers of people. But from a very simple, cheap, crappy old laptop with a phone and a cable attached, that would work anywhere, literally work anywhere, that required no training and just, just, just incredibly powerful. And so I wrote that. And in fact, I wrote it in Finland over five weeks. The idea came to me just up the road from where we're sitting now Fantastic. in Stocks Terrace in a little, little white flat opposite the co-op. Um, but that's where the idea came from. And and when I came out with the idea and I realised that it had the potential to unlock huge amounts of social good and nobody else was really paying attention to that, then I took on that that kind of mantle, I suppose. So In short, it just allows anyone anywhere, well it used to, it's shut down now sadly, but this was almost 20 years ago now, um, allows you to send large numbers of text messages to to people. So it was used to monitor elections, it was used to allow human rights abuse reporting, it was conservation projects um, texted from it, agricultural projects. I mean it ended up about 30 million people getting information through the platform in 190 countries wow which completely I mean like I I would have happily like you said earlier I would happily have helped one person yeah
0: wow that I mean that's absolutely fantastic I couldn't quite believe that this man that I knew when I was younger was doing these things at that time when I knew you Um, and while I was playing cricket really bad exactly to to explain it briefly to our (laughs) listeners I, I met Ken Through our local cricket team, Um, we both share that love of cricket, and very interesting. You don't know what your fellow man, or from my perspective, as a young child, yeah, yeah, the grown up was doing. No, this frontline SMS. I mean, I think that was absolutely incredible. Really, obviously, what that's done for the world, let alone yourself, um, and how that's boosted your presence in, in in the career that you wanted to achieve finally with your book where where can our listeners get this from where is it you know reachable um if you care to explain that so the easiest
1: place i hate to say because i'm not a big fan but the easiest place is amazon amazon.co.uk It's um, an audiobook paperback and a hardback and a kindle book so i've got it across all the platforms but i've also published it in a way that bookshops can get it so you could order it through waterstones or a regular kind of bookshop So it should be available in in most places. Amazon is the cheapest, though, because it's just how Amazon works. So if you've not got a lot of money. But also on the website, qanja.net slash life, there's a free PDF of the whole book. Because I just felt that if there are people out there that could benefit from it who didn't have the money to buy it, that it would be a sin. It's a sin, as the Petrol Boys were saying. The Petrol Boys are in the book, um, but I felt if there were people out there that could benefit from it who just couldn't afford it or couldn't get it for some reason, that it would be wrong to not provide a free copy. So you can get the whole thing for free on the website as a PDF if you
0: want to do that. And that's why you've done so well in life with generosity like that, Ken. It's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Thank, thank you, you so much for coming in and speak to me about such important topics. And yeah, thank you once again for being. No,
1: thank you. I appreciate it
0: really good chat there with Ken. It certainly was great to catch up with him after so many years and talk about these topics. It's really interesting on the topic of imposter syndrome because I feel it's something that we can all relate to with self-doubt. We always have that feeling that we underachieve or are not good enough. Sometimes, you know, I guess that some people are just more susceptible than others. I know that I certainly fall under that category and often find myself self-doubting a lot with certainly my professional career. A link to Ken's book will be in the episode description. I've personally read it. I can certainly recommend it for others for sure. There's also a link for describing seasonal affective disorder and ways in which to cope with that on the NHS website. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope once again that you found it interesting. Please let me know your thoughts and opinions and once again get in touch if you would like to voice your opinions and possibly feature in an episode around the topics that we'll discuss in the future. Thanks for listening once again.